Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast, The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Today, we have Sarah Longwell on. She is the editor of the founder, publisher of The Bulwark, which is a never-Trumper conservative magazine. We've had Sarah on the show before. She is a Republican, but a pro-democracy Republican. So not the bad kind. The kind that we used to argue about, like, taxes for billionaires and how much yeah, we used to have passionate arguments about with right like where where if someone won the election because they made the better argument then that was a bummer but the democracy the republic continued yeah it was weird right i mean it's almost hard to believe that that was, mitt romney was the devil remember mitt romney right. was, john mccain <laughs> oh my god if he wins we're doomed the, 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 those you know, were the, the day. Those were the days, weren't they? Weren't those the days? Our democracy would have continued on. Probably would have bombed around or something, right? So it wouldn't have been great by any stretch of the imagination. But those were debates that didn't revolve around: Do we have a functioning democracy anymore? And that is what is so devastated about this current state. And if you tuned in last week, Joe Trippi talked about how he was working with the Lincoln Project, which is a group of Republican Never Trumpers that have been attacking anti-democracy Republicans, their own people, trying to sort of purge their party of these dangerous, undemocratic forces that have taken shop in the Republican Party, thanks to Donald Trump. And his whole thing was like, we need this, we need this alliance this November of Democrats and pro-democracy Republicans in order to, to, take, to keep control of, of Congress and make sure that these Republicans don't take control because Carrie, you know that if Republicans take the house, Kevin McCarthy is not going to be the speaker of the house. Right. I mean, it's going to be like Jim Jordan or. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, McCarthy is like such a wet noodle. He's horrible, but he would just be Trump's, you know, like bootlicker. But I don't even think, I think it's going to be worse than McCarthy. It's going to be Jim Jordan. I do. I do believe that only because I'm watching people who, you know, really are sort of more attuned to public to Republican circles than I am. And they think McCarthy's out. If they win, McCarthy's out. Yeah, why and, would and they you stick can with see this? Why? No, you can see this. You can always see like Marjorie Taylor Greene and those type of, you know, folks saying, oh, I don't know about that Kevin McCarthy. He doesn't really have our vote of confidence right now. Well, that's basically like, hey, listen, if we win, you're done, McCarthy, and we're going to get someone we like a lot better. So that's why after we disc- we talked to, to Joe Trippi last week and he talked about the sort of coalition, we thought it would be a good idea to have one of those anti-Trump, pro-democracy Republicans on. We're not going to agree with Sarah Longwell on a lot of policy issues, but we are going to we do agree on the fact that we need a functioning democracy and a healthy two party system that that reflect that respects traditions of democracy, norms and the Constitution. Crazy, right. crazy. <laughs> 
we want to get back to a place where we can have those policy debates, those policy arguments. But right now, they don't matter because we're just trying to save the republic, folks. Like, that's what it comes down to. And that's what we talked. We had her on last year, uh, Sarah Longwell. She's a friend of mine uh, from back in D.C. And that's what we talked about. How do you save the republic? So that's that'll be that. That's the subject again, because it hasn't gotten any better since last year. So. So she'll be on in about 10 minutes. So before she comes on, though, Carrie, there is clearly fissures in that Republican Party right now, and particularly that that deplorable 30 percent. Right. That's like the Trump core base. And it's not growing. I mean, we're not seeing any indication that this is a growing movement. It's big, though. So we don't it's not like it's dangerous. It's it's incredibly dangerous and particularly outsized powerful if we don't turn out in the same kind of numbers that we did in 2020. Like if our turnout is down, they're going to turn out. We saw that last year. They're going to turn out. So we have this sort of threat, but they are deplorable and they're starting to be deplorable against each other. Which is what we want. <laughs> Rip each other to threat to shreds because that's what we want, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we have what now? Four social conservative social media outlets, including Trump's going to Bigfoot his way into that space here. He was supposed to do it last year. It hasn't happened yet because it's usual Trumpian incompetence. But at some point, presumably, he'll, he'll step in. They're already well, sort of attacking each other. Right. And that and, you know, his social media sites really shaping up now that he's put formersman Devin Nunes in charge. I mean, that's a that's a yeah, he's he's, sharp as attack, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, if I need to somebody to run my tech company, I look for a farmer with a dairy zero, farmer, a dairy farmer that that's. That's why Daily Coast is as successful as it is. Nobody knows this, but the CEO of Daily Coast is actually a peanut farmer. They just peanuts. Hey, don't just a peanut peanut farmer. I mean, Jimmy Carter was. I know smart, it was so. a terrible. I know. As soon as I said it, I kicked myself. I was like, "Damn, I should have picked a better option." But anyway, the point is, he's not going to pick somebody who actually knows what he's doing. He's going to pick somebody who's a bootlicker. And Devin Nunes right. is amongst the top of it. And there. there <laughs> The second I, I love because it's truth media and it's about free speech. The second that somebody criticizes Donald Trump, the second somebody puts up anti-Trump memes, we'll see how much free speech is allowed on truth media. So it's it's going to be I, I'm actually really looking forward to the trolls and what they do over there. And actually, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what the TikTok kids conjure up because they've, they've been a thorn on Donald Trump's side for a while and they can be very clever in, in trolling Trump. So it should be fun. But um, we're seeing, I mean, these major personalities are going after each other, including Ron DeSantis going after Donald Trump, Donald Trump against Mitch McConnell. And then all right. And then all of the, you know, all of Trump's, you know, sort of provocateurs like, uh, you know, and this is this is when I wrote about the social media situation today. You know, you think about um, uh, Getter, you know, which is like a conservative Twitter and Gab.com, which is kind of like a conservative Twitter, right wing Twitter. Um, and then, you know, and and uh, Parler and things like that. There's others, but they're all going after this market of people, which is pretty small. Like like Twitter globally has more than 200 million 
active users on a daily basis. And Getter has around 4 million accounts total, as does Gab.com has somewhere around 3 million or something like that. So this is, you know, these, these are, I mean, they're kind of like big in terms of right-wing media, but they're small. They're, they're minuscule. And they haven't been gaining much traction. They all like had this burst of energy after Trump uh, was deplatformed by Twitter and uh, Facebook last year. And then really like there hasn't been, you know, them gaining, making steady gains since then. Um, So it's like a finite audience and they're all sort of, you know, clawing at each other, trying to figure out how to, how to make the most of their audience and keep their audience, especially when Trump enters the ring supposedly in the next couple of months with, you know, truth social uh, as it's called. So, you know, and so that's a small pie that they're dividing up. And, you know, Getter's trying to court Trump Trumpers and Gab.com, their CEO is trying to say, hey, you know, Trump's really betrayed us with his support of vaccines. You know, he's a sellout. You should stick with us. We've got the free media. You know, we've got the the freedom of speech platform. We're not going to like, you know, we're not going to have any anyone observing what's going on here. You can say whatever you want, that type of thing. So he's literally trying to claw him away. But then the same thing is happening among like the Sidney Powells and the Mike Flynn's, right? They're, they made a bunch of easy money off of these, uh, you know, off of Roots. right wing. Yeah, right, right. Off of Trump's cultists. But Trump's cultist isn't a growing number of people, thank goodness, and hopefully it never is. It's this finite number of people, and now they're fighting over who gets to make money off of, uh, off of that finite number of people. In a similar way that Trump and Ron DeSantis are going to, I think, very soon go to blows over who gets you know, bragging rights over over Trumpism. Right. I mean, I think that I do think and and civics polling has shown this, that Trump's support is softening and he specifically has started to lose some people around the time that he said, I got vaccinated and you should, too, at an Alabama (laughs) rally. And then, you know, more recently with Bill O'Reilly, I think in December on stage saying, I did get the booster, you know, and he kind of his ego, like he needs to take credit for the booster. I'm sure some of his at the vaccines, I'm sure some of his um, aides are saying you should take credit for this because then you can take credit for it if you run for president again. Um, But that is that is an all out betrayal of what Trumpism has become. Right. Because they are they are you know, just down the line. Now you're either an anti-vaxxer or you're a sellout. And, you know, I mean, we want to see something scary. Georgia, Georgia Republicans, state Republicans just put together a uh, bill. And I'm not sure if it was in the center of the House. I think it was the House, but I'm not sure. They just put together a bill that says that you can't mandate any vaccines for entrance into any public area. <laughs> so including schools. Right. So yeah, that, now, we're not just talking about COVID-19. We're talking about the polio vaccine. We're talking about measles. We're talking about a host of really horrible diseases that were stopped in their tracks by vaccines. And they want to outlaw mandates of those vaccines. These are vaccines that every kid takes in order to go to public school. Right. So, you know, that that is the Republican Party now. They've gone from anti-COVID vaccine to anti-vax. 
And Trump is starting to be out of step with the anti-vaxxers because he's even admitted that he's gotten the vaccine. And what you're, I think what you're starting to see is he might not have the strongest hold on, on Trumpism anymore. And the question is, who's going to end up being able to wield Trumpism as a political power and also whether or not Trumpism splinters down into these factions that are just infighting, because that would be that would be ideal for Democrats and for the preservation of the Republic, in my opinion, is if they started fighting so much amongst each other that they divided up and couldn't agree on who they should vote for, when they should vote, et cetera. So, so to sort of summarize what you just said, Donald Trump is not Trumpy enough for a growing segment of the Republican Party base. That is mind blowing. And like you said, in civics polling, we've seen, I, I think it's been 10 or 15 point net drop in his favorabilities. Uh, he used to be in the mid 90s. Now he's in the high 80s. Doesn't seem like a big deal. But for the last 45, for the last five years, you, there was no movement. That's among that's among Republicans, by the way, just to be clear, that was among Republicans. It's like a seven point drop or an eight point drop among Republicans since since basically Election Day last year. Which, again, you may think only a few points. These people were rock solid. And so now you're starting to see the what that anti the anti-vaccination zealots, you know, what sort of percentage of the Republican Party they are. And they may be around 10 percent at least. But. That's spreading, right? Because it's not this is these sort of trends don't just happen overnight. Not everybody heard the news overnight. They're going to start creating memes and they're going to spread it and they're going to talk, you know, in their little crazy corners of the world. And Trump may have a real issue here. And he's really, really extra pissed at Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, because DeSantis is one. He's not ruling out running for president in 2024. And, and we really don't know if Trump is going to run but he wants everybody to say that they're deferring to him. Whether he runs or not, he wants it to be his decision. He doesn't want anybody challenging him. So Ron DeSantis hasn't said that. I'm willing to go on record right now saying, I'm pretty sure Trump's going to run. And the reason I say that is, is that you saw last week that there are a lot, there's a lot of legal issues knocking on his door. And he, he wants, he wants to be, he wants the coverage, <laughs> he wants the coverage of yeah. being president. So, but look, Sarah's here. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. All right. So yeah, let's bring Sarah on then. Um, Sarah Longwell is the publisher of the Bulwark, which is actually, I know we're all liberals, mostly listening to this. It's actually a fantastic publication. It's, it's, it's well considered and, and that thoughtful conservatism that's important in our debate, in our democracy. It is important to have sort of those opposing viewpoints and understand what the other side is thinking. Problem, Sarah, is that you're a small percentage of that Republican Party now, right? That thoughtful conservatism is actually has has been taken over by by Trumpism to the point where, as we were saying right before you came on, even Trump may not be Trump enough on the issue of vaccination. But anyway. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Such a pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, at this point, I sort of feel like the bulwark occupies, I forget the Republican, even forget the never Trump, we just try to occupy the sane center. Uh, You may have seen, we actually picked up Will Salatan from Slate. Uh, So we're expanding beyond just trying to reach an audience because in part, you're right. There's not, 
I think we started out with the with the goal of trying to say like, okay, well, we're going to speak to the, we had this idea, maybe it was 30, 40% of the Republican Party that was still sane. Uh, I think that uh, it's been a real wake up call the last few, even the last couple of years, but, but even just in 2021, post-insurrection. I mean, that was the most illuminating and frightening part of it. Because that's when you realize that, I, I don't know, I think I always had this theory that Trump was a, a cancer on the Republican Party. And if you could if you could cut him out, you know, you could go back to some of the more sane parts of the party. But instead, he metastasized. He's he's the entire party now. I mean, the thing that's happening right now that I, I sort of can't get over is, is J.D. Vance, who is a former fellow never-Trumper, <laughs> yes. right, running for Senate against and a complete lunatic in Josh Mandel, former somebody who used to endorse Mitt Romney. Josh Mandel, now a total lunatic. J.D. Vance has been in a lunatic competition with him. Marjorie Taylor Greene endorsed the second craziest person in the race, which was J.D. Vance, who was trying to out-maga Josh Mandel. And he's put out a tweet talking about how honored he was to get Marjorie Taylor Greene's endorsement. Imagine that being a point of honor. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> It's really hard to get there. Come on, come on, come on. Hey, so listen, and that we're talking about, of course, this, uh, I don't know if we said this, the, the Pennsylvania Senate race, but the, the, the open seat there and, 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 and Sarah's talking about the, you know, the Republican field for the open seat in that Pennsylvania, or no, it's Ohio. Ohio. Sorry. I'm Ohio. sorry. Ohio. And, and J.D. Vance is, is hillbilly eulogy, which was like the bell of the ball for, for several years, right? It's like, oh, this is what rural America you know, is really like. And it, was, it wasn't MAGA. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of like, these are real people with real thoughts and, and with real concerns, with real problems, blah, 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 right? It was, it was, I was never a big fan of him <laughs> before it was cool to not be a big fan of him. But I got, I got what he occupied, right? I got that space. And I thought he, he had a role to play. Yeah, and, sure. I mean, look, that. I mean, he was like celebrated by the New Yorker. He was like a New York yeah. Times. Yeah, you know, he was a bestseller. And people kind of thought he was the Sherpa that could take him through real America with empathy and and see this sort of forgotten man and, and explain why people might have voted for Trump. But he himself was incredibly anti-Trump. And I mean, if you play clips from him in 2016-ish, he sounds just like me. He just sounds like a person who says Trump is a scourge on the Republican Party and he's a, uh, you know, he's got fascist tendencies, whatever. And now it's funny, the club for growth. I mean, this if you watch the Republican primary in Ohio, based on the five minutes of what I heard you guys talking about, it's a real microcosm of this because the Republican on Republican violence is about who can be the most crazy. And so Club for Growth has entered the race on behalf of, I guess, Josh Mandel, but it's certainly against J.D. Vance to to tell you how he was used to be a horrible never-Trumper and they play all the old clips of him from back in the day uh, to show you why he's inauthentic. And of course, he's also being bolstered by $10 million of Peter Thiel's money while running on a big anti tech populist platform. The whole thing is a farce. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, okay. So listen, let's back up a second and just say you were talking about, you know, when you started the bulwark and, and kind of what you thought you guys were going to occupy, occupy in terms of a lane. And it turns out that there's a lot more, you know, sort of for lack of a better, more artful term, crazy Republicans out there that really are into Trump or Trumpism or whatever. What percentage of the Republican Party? I mean, it sounds like now at the bulwark, you're trying to appeal to really both sides, like the same what you call the same lane. We might not we might actually not be part of the same. lane, But but we're we're pretty progressive over here. But anyway, um, what part of the Republican Party do you think you still have an audience with? 
So when I think about this, what I what I look at really is the number of Republicans who think that the election was stolen, because that number has been sitting around 70 percent now for quite some time. So we sort of look at that. I look at that 30 percent and think, okay, well, what? What's going on with the 30 percent who doesn't think the election was stolen? And those people tend to be vaccinated. They tend to think that January 6th was a bad thing and not necessarily an Antifa false flag operation. Um, and so, you know, I still think that there's a remnant there. But the thing to understand about the Republican Party that's interesting and I think people miss sometimes is that. There's a a very clear political realignment going on where a bunch of people that have come into the Republican Party over the last five or six years are either people who used to be sort of these white working class voters who might have belonged to a union. They might have been an economic sort of populist Democrat. And because of the U-shaped theory, you know, the shoe horseshoe theory of politics, they've now circled around like a Bernie Sanders voter is almost, you know, they they may line up with Trump in in some important ways. And as the Republican Party has gotten more populist to cater to these voters, you know, these white working class voters have begun to comprise more of the Republican Party. That sort of country club idea of the Republican Party is fading. But the other piece, the critical piece is all of the people who were just unaffiliated, people who didn't participate in politics at all. Like Donald Trump built a political infrastructure out of entirely new people who were previously disengaged in politics who are now very engaged. And I think this is one of the reasons that Republicans, he was such a shock to the system, because it wasn't just that existing Republican voters were shifting. That was happening, too. But there was also just this big blast of new people. It's why go. It's why 2020 people were so shocked at the numbers that Trump was able to put up, because there was a whole bunch of people who just weren't in the system who, who he brought in. And that's made a big difference in what the Republican Party looks like. And so that 30% are like the old kind of Wall Street Journal, probably country club Republicans who are still like, well, I like low taxes, so I'm sticking around. But I don't know about some of these other crazy people. I guess I'll tolerate that to get my tax cuts. And so we still try to speak to some of them. But I think more more than anything, we've been trying to put together a coalition in the center to see if we can provide. It's just the more all the incentives push out, right? All the incentives push to the extremes. And so there's kind of a wide open white space there in the middle that I think we've been trying to occupy. Yeah. And which is we had Joe Trippi on last week and he talked about, you know, being part of the pro-democracy movement and joining the Lincoln Project, you know, who are, you know, who he had members of whom, you know, who run that thing, like Stuart Stevens, he talked about having just, you know, brass like knuckle you know knock down drag them out fights with for you know previous to now for certain senate seats and things like that and now joe trippy says hey you know i'm joining the lincoln project and i'm starting he's also started a pro-democracy movement you know website recently and whatever but it, it just being a part of the solution is in terms of trying to save the republic so sorry marcos i think you you were heading no no um I, I don't know where I was going. You, 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 what, you, <laughs> what you were saying is is was actually kind of great, but it's just the idea like we have these policy differences and we're going to, it'd be great if we could argue about those policy differences, but right now we have something bigger and that's, we may be in a situation where we may not have the opportunity to have a democracy under which we can have these policy discussions. And that is absolutely terrifying. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I I had a piece in the bulwark last week in which uh, I talked about the Republicans 2022 strategy. And I also offered up a whole bunch of of ideas for Joe Biden. And they were literally irrespective of policy. I was just like, all I need is for you to do better and for more people to like you and for your poll numbers to go up so that you don't get crushed in the midterms and the authoritarians take over. Like, so it's like, so tell us. What are those questions? Yeah, tell us what they are. We want to know. We want to know about what you think the Republicans' biggest Achilles heels Achilles heel is, and and conversely, what you think Democrats should and need to do to exploit it. Yeah, I wish I could start there with where the Republicans are vulnerable, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to. I'm afraid I'm going to have to do something different. I'm going to tell you where the Republicans are strong, because. What I see happening, shaping up, so the Republicans, have they're doing something very interesting, and it's worth noting and sort of naming what it is that they're doing. They they are, and it goes to the original thing that we were talking about. They run this kind of parallel universe strategy, where in the rural and, and sort of exurbs, where those base voters are, the super Trumpy voters, that's where the stop the steal is 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 that's what they focus on right because that's the turnout juice that's the thing that makes people say and i hear it all the time in the focus groups i i I conduct focus groups uh almost on a weekly basis of of all across the political spectrum but if you're doing trump 2020 voters and you ask them you know how you feeling about 22 you know who you're going to vote for they say any living breathing republican i don't care put an r next to their name democrats cheat i'm going to get them now, for the normie Republicans who don't think that the election was stolen, though, they're able to go on offense in a more sort of sane way where they'll talk about inflation, the economy, COVID exhaustion. And those are the things that are really working. It's the kind of things that, you know, it's basically that's a Glenn Youngkin strategy there <clears throat> that really worked for Youngkin. Now, I would say that going into 22, the thing that's the the bad news for the country but the slightly good news for Democrats is that there aren't actually that many Yunkin style candidates running in 22. Like most of the candidates that are running for the governor's races and many in the Senate are absolutely insane. Um, if you look at Carrie Lake, who is running for governor of Arizona, out of her mind, says she would not have certified the 2020 election, won't get vaccinated, just like pure uncut MAGA everywhere she appears. She's with the pillow guy, you know, that's and, and, and the secretary of state, um, who, by the way, would certify <laughs> these are the people who would certify an election go in 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 twenty twenty four also just a just a just a crazy person. You know, you got Herschel Walker in Georgia, who I mean, I don't even think it's begun. People have started sort of picking apart this guy's past. He's got an incredibly violent past, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of a lot of problems there that I think might make people uh, nervous about putting him in the United States. Senate. We already talked about Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance just totally out of their minds. And you got candidates like that all over the place. And so these are people where they might have a tough time running a thread the needle strategy that appeals uh, to normies, which is why I actually think Democrats have a much better chance holding on to the Senate. It sort of reminds me of 2010. I uh, I remember my my I knew Christine O'Donnell a little bit, but you remember the, <laughs> you might remember Christine O'Donnell. Uh, I am not a witch. Uh, not when a witch. she and Sharon Angle and the uh, legitimate rape guy, you know, they were all running in that in that cycle, and that they you know that's when Claire McCaskill was able to win in Missouri, and that's because there were just people who were too far outside the mainstream. Now, yeah, this was part t- of the just for context. Yeah. That was the Tea Party movement crowd. So. In the same way, now we have this Trump movement crowd sort of has elevated and are running for these offices in the same way that kind of extremists. And, and I think Mitch McConnell did a good job of sort of like squashing that Tea Party, you know, insurrection in the following cycles. But um, 
Ain't gonna happen now. But now Mitch McConnell is endorsing Herschel Walker. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah, he didn't even know. bother with a primary. Didn't even bother trying to find somebody <laughs> to primary Herschel Walker. Nope. Nope. Crazy. So so I do think that that is that's an opportunity um, is to create. And it really is about creating that high level narrative of these guys have lost their minds. They are crazy. Now, the problem is, again, going back to the problem for Democrats, is they need a bunch of conditions to be right for that to happen. And so, you know, as somebody who's really rooting for Biden on the pro-democracy team here, I've been super frustrated the last six months, basically since Afghanistan. And and I have like my personal feelings about each of these things, but from a, from a hey, how are you going to win in 22 standpoint, it's just Oh, man, I watched the focus groups turn on him, and it's not the MAGA focus groups. It's the Democratic focus groups. You know, he has been and, – and and it's and look, so much of it is just COVID. Like I'd say – so I give a bunch of um, a bunch of advice and, and things that I think Biden needs to do to turn things around and recalibrate. And it really all just, amounts to – yes? Can I just ask one question? Sure. When you say it's the Democratic focus groups, are these like Democratic leaning or are you really talking about the Democratic base? So, well, what do you consider the Democratic base? Because <laughs> I consider it college-educated suburban voters and Black people who are much more moderate I mean, yeah, than the progressive I mean, base. You're not, you're not wrong about that. Yeah. That's about what I think. Like, people of color, not maybe not all people of color, but people of color by, by and large, and, and hopefully the majority, and this is what got them over the top in 2020, the suburban voters. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I just don't think young progressives in cities are... I think that's what people think about when they think about the Democratic base. But I don't think that's the Democratic base. I think those are people who vote not always reliably. Um, I, I So and here's what I'll tell you. Our screens are different all the time. But generally speaking, we've just screened by 2020 Biden voters. And we're just asking 2020 Biden voters. Now, sometimes we, we set them up specifically. They're 2016 Trump voters, 2020 Biden voters. And we're looking at swing voters. But I would say by and large, the thing that alarmed me most was when I was talking to just straight up Biden 2022 voters and hearing all the C's and D's and F's that they were giving him. And the problem with your very unruly coalition, to your point, is that the progressives are mad because he hasn't done enough on climate change. He hasn't forgiven student debt. But then there's a whole other segment. And I would say it's a bigger segment of people who think he's either gone too far left or they don't understand what Democrats are doing, fighting with each other. They have no idea what's in any of the bills. And so it's like and and the thing that hangs over all of it is covid. Right. The, the, The promise of Joe Biden was, oh, my God, just please let this car alarm that's been going off in my ear for four years stop and let life go back to normal. But the life like kind of didn't go back to normal. You've had two surges and those are not Joe Biden's fault, but. I think when you have people waiting in line for tests and you have a CDC that's being really confusing, I mean, people are totally confused and they don't and their kids aren't in school and they're just miserable. And as long as people are miserable, they're going to blame the person in charge. And, and, and that's just it. And that's where you're seeing, you know, Biden's numbers when you're at 41, 42 percent, like you're losing Democrats. Um, and oh, yeah. so so that is that is his pro- that's the problem with the environment is that they've got to go on offense on covid. People know you can't wave a magic wand and just get rid of covid. So what are you doing to mitigate it? What are you doing to keep schools open? What are you doing to keep businesses open to keep the economy going? The economy is what everybody says is their number one issue. So there's and there's bright spots in the economy. Lowest unemployment like in a bajillion years. So, you know, lean into the good stuff and then say 
a lot of the a lot of the economic stuff, those are attendant consequences from COVID. It's the supply chain, it's inflation, um, it's 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 staffing shortages. So like you gotta go, you gotta lean into that stuff, go on offense. And while you're if you're doing those things, the economy and COVID and focusing relentlessly on relentlessly on that, you gotta stop doing these big omnibus bills that are splitting the Democratic coalition because it makes people look totally ineffectual. All the Republicans have to do is sit back, eat popcorn and say, Oh, look at these guys like censoring Kirsten Cinema. Like, I think this stuff is political malpractice. You can be as mad at her as you want in private, but like all of the fraction, all of the fractious fighting among Democrats is great for Republicans. And so I would take the most popular things out of those bills that, you know, Manchin and Cinema are on board with. And I would go on legislative offense, pass one or two things that people understand, because I do all these focus groups. Nobody has any idea what's in the covid relief package. They don't know what's in build back better. They're just price tags to people. And like the fact like and Biden has wins, right? You got a bipartisan infrastructure builder, got a two trillion dollar covid relief package. Go tell people what was in that covid relief package. They got no idea. They've totally forgotten about it. And and then on my last thing. You know, Biden, all the time in the focus groups, the Democrats are like, why don't we see him? I don't. What is he doing? I don't see him. I don't see Kamala. Why isn't anybody telling me anything? I'm, you know, I'm not getting any information. And I just think, like, you got to get him out there. And I, I know he's old, but like, you got to get it. You got and find go get a go find a thousand surrogates. Tell them all to say the same three things and get them out there. It is time for relentless messaging. The message discipline of Republicans. I didn't know this. Uh, when I was a Republican, I thought it was easy. <laughs> I thought it was easy. The we message <laughs> discipline of Republicans. I mean, Donald Trump, look at it. This guy would like, you know, send off a, like 10 executive orders and they'd walk around being like, best economy for black people, best economy for women. Look, we've, like, we've, uh, you know, we're cutting red tape. We've moved the embassy to Jerusalem. And then Jim Jordan would say it. And then every other Republican would say it. And they just tell you how great things are. And the Democrats are fighting with each other. None of them are on the same page. There's not effective surrogates. Biden's not out there enough. And so like, I'm just like, put a knife in your teeth shake the democratic coalition by the shoulders and like go on offense against these guys and while you're at it throw some elbows at republicans like just the people whose names start with g gates green gomer you know like go start they're crazy they're crazy people (laughs) define republicans republicans do great at defining democrats now part of that's because they have no they don't need to legislate ever so they got lots of time to do that but uh, you got to walk and chew gum so i'm just uh I'm, I'm an evangelist for the shake them by the shoulders, knife in the teeth offense. We got to pull it together because um, it's about to be bad, I think. Yeah, no, we have a running theory that the reason the January 6th commission has been so effective is because Liz Cheney is actually a Republican who is co-in charge, but really seemingly in charge in charge and actually is it's got that knife. She's wielding that, that knife. And, and we're certain and, the, the commission would never look like that if Cheney wasn't like at the top of it. Also, I, I just as an aside, I have to think, too, because she knew where all the bodies were buried. You know, when they sat down to strategize about what to do with that commission, it wasn't like, oh, start small, guys. She was probably like, guys, this was a total <laughs> effing conspiracy. Like, we need to go here, here, here and here and connect all the dots because I'm telling you, they all connect. So let's just do it this way. Anyway, sorry, that's an aside, yeah. but yeah. But the, but the, I mean, the January 6th commission is a, sort of a perfect ex- encapsulation of the democratic approach to things, right? You have a, a you have uh, Mark Meadows not show up and you're like, well, we might perhaps maybe consider doing something about that. That's the messaging. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Tear our hair out. And it's been like this since I started paying attention to, to, to politics. So uh, Sarah, let me ask you this. So you do focus groups and you have a podcast where you sort of, you were telling me you have somebody on to talk about, you know, to, to view 
one of your focus groups, and then you guys talk about it. And you did this before the November election in Virginia, and you had, I think you said, was it James Carville that you had on? Yeah. Uh, okay, so one of the things you brought up is sort of COVID exhaustion, and that's one of the theories about what happened in Virginia this, this past November. It was COVID exhaustion. I unfortunately haven't listened to that podcast yet because I didn't even know you had one until I was looking, <laughs> I was redoing your bio, prepare, uh, preparing for the show. So I definitely got to go back and listen. Can you tell us about that show and if you actually saw hints about what was going to happen that November? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I, it's funny. I, I was not a somebody who did focus groups that much in my past every now and then for something. But when I uh, when Trump got elected and I started to get into this space. I was hanging out with all the sad Republicans. We're trying to figure out what to do. I mean, one of the things that caught us so off guard was the fact that Republicans had voted for Donald Trump. We were like, well, these are not the people at the think tank meetings I attend. These, you know, these are something is going on here that we don't understand. What are people not interested in, you know, our monetary policies? Apparently not. So I started doing the focus groups to actually to figure out if you could primary Trump. Like, was there a significant enough portion of the party? that you could actually primary him going into um, 2020. And you may recall, we like had some conversation with Larry Hogan. That stuff was widely reported. Unfortunately, didn't get anybody serious to jump in. But I got addicted to the focus groups because it was as soon as you start listening people to people, regular people talking, you're like, oh, yeah, like I've got it all wrong. And, and they'll tell you all the answers. They'll tell you all the answers months before any of the pundits start talking about them. And I got pretty addicted to them. And, fr- and in 2020, they actually helped us really understand, you know, a lot of the ads that people were running in the Never Trump space and others were these like big bashing, you know, Trump ads. And they would go viral on Twitter. We were showing, and we were doing that too, showing them to swing voters. And they were like, no, I hate this. I hate this. And what, that was where we sort of stumbled on the idea of doing the testimonials. So what we did was go find a bunch of real Republicans to say, hey, I've been a Republican all my life and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because Donald Trump's an insane person. And right, those were these these were the re- Republican voters against Trump against Trump. That, that's right. Yeah. Right. That you guys sponsored. OK, sorry. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So we did. And yeah, we did like over 40 million and we did direct swing voter focused with, you know, building permission structures with real voices because that stuff worked a lot better. And the focus groups helped us understand that it helped us see what people were responding to. And so I just like fell in love with them. And so even in 2021, this is how I realized that after the insurrection, people didn't care. Like I was, I went into these focus groups, the, the, the 2020 Trump voters hearing, expecting to hear a whole bunch of people say, it's gone too far. I can't believe it. And instead it was like, I know this wasn't, those weren't Republicans. Where were the guns? If it wasn't Republicans, like, you know, like they're just, it, it was, and they had all the, all these conspiracy theories. And so I just find them to be an incredibly valuable tool to figure out where people are. But one of the things that happens was I was talking about the focus groups so much that I felt, and I was writing about them so much. Uh, that I wanted to make people know that I was not making this up. <laughs> like these, this is I'm not. This is I'm not like filtering them through my own lens. And so I started to invite reporters to sit to to observe them, to write about them. And then I was like, you know what? I think people should hear the actual clips. And so I, I came. I. I you know, I had the idea, well, now that we're doing all of them by Zoom and I don't have to, you know, I'm not sitting behind the glass somewhere, I can record them and you just get people to sign releases. And so you, so the show is, I will have a guest, a political operative, and I'll make them watch the focus groups too, and then come on and discuss them. And we'll play clips from the focus groups so that people can see, I'm not making this up. This is exactly how people are talking. It's what they're thinking. And we did a focus group, me and uh, the one that, that James Carville and I did going into the election. And I, you could hear it in these voters. These were Biden voters and they were totally miserable. 
And they were mad about Terry McAuliffe saying that parents shouldn't have uh, a role in school. And, you know, Carville was was close to the McAuliffe campaign and was sort of defending the fact that that was taken out of context and it's being blown up. But there just was no, you could see it right there in the one we did beforehand, that this was going to be really, really close because people were not, they just weren't feeling good and weren't buying. One of the things that was interesting, and this came through, I did a bunch of post-game uh, in Virginia as well with 2020 Biden voters who then voted for Glenn Youngkin. The thing that was was coming through pretty clearly is that it wasn't people talked a lot about critical race theory. Um, there was a trans bathroom thing that had sort of was in the news a lot. That wasn't the thing that had swing voters mad. They just wanted their kids in school. That was it. Like it was the covid the disruption, the not having the kids in school, it was the number one thing that you heard from from parents who like can't take it. And anybody with kids knows when your school suddenly goes remote or uh, shuts down either for COVID or a snow day now, because now you have school, if it's a snow day, you're just like your day is it's gone. Right. And so that not being able to re- rely on school had become it was just too exhausting for people. And, and that was clear in the pre and the post focus groups so- we did. So let me just say, so so Sarah has now a, um, you know, seasons of this focus group. What's it called? The uh, Is it just it's, called the focus group? It's called the focus group. We're going into season yeah. two at the end of the month, and we're going to break down all of the, we're going to talk to primary voters, uh, both Dems and Republicans. And as we go into these races and kind of election season heats up, so we'll do two seasons this year, one for the primary and then one for the general. So I I encourage everybody to listen to those. Um, I will definitely listen to them. And hey, if you ever want to invite me to one of your focus groups, I'll listen (laughs) in, publicize it. Would love to do that. Okay, just a plug for me, myself, Carrie Elveld, old friend of yours. Old friend of mine. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, but I do have to ask you as a follow up to the Glenn Youngkin, Virginia thing. Have you watched, I mean, he, now he, he issued this, and I don't want to go too deeply into this, but, you know, getting kids to go to school was the big issue you were talking about. And he immediately on his first day issued this optional mask mandate when most of the schools across the state were mandating masks. And as of the first couple days of this week, when his optional mask mandate was supposed to go into effect, it was sheer chaos. No one knew. There were suburban districts that were saying, we, we're going to go with the mass mandate. Um, you know, there were seven lawsuits against his optional mass mandate. Um, you know, no one knew who was, it seemed like the rural counties, some of them were going to go with the optional mass stuff. But it's sheer chaos across the state. Do you think that there's any way that that becomes a stumbling block for Republicans? I mean, that he, he may like, totally screw this up yeah i mean here's the thing that i think with with yunkin in particular governor of virginia is only a four-year term you get one you get one shot at it and uh and i think he's running for president in 2024 of trump like i think he's got his eyes on the next on the next thing and 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 that means getting into kind of a desantis territory like i've actually been a little surprised so i was against yunkin because i Anybody who flirts with the big lie for Trump, they're out. They've, they've, you know, but then when he 
in the interim after he was elected, I was like, maybe I was kind of wrong. Like maybe he is a good path forward, good middle ground. But since he since he got into office, like he totally jumped the gun on this mask mandate just for political reasons. And like you said, it was like badly like right now in the middle of Omicron, like I'm I'm actually for somebody coming up with a plan for what are the benchmarks for when we're going to let kids not wear masks in school? Cause it's sucks. It's terrible. And there's a lot of science that says, you know, so there's, there's, but, but right now, like right in the midst of this and, and to have it, you know, to have it implemented this poorly, that's a, that's just like a bad management, uh, which is the thing he's supposed to be good at. So is it going to backfire on Republicans overall though? I, I don't mean, these know. Are, these are suburban I don't think so, voters. Man. It's their issue. No. Okay. All I right. don't. Sorry, I mean, go ahead. I, I think it goes back to that whole democratic inability to create villains and to have a unified message and to, to make him to the next villain. And and you almost don't I, I would argue you almost don't need to because Donald Trump is who was absent in 2021. That was, I think, uh, Youngkins and Ciotrelli in New Jersey. That was their big their big success is to keep Donald Trump out of that out of their states. That's not happening this year, right? Donald Trump. No. So now Sarah just said that in her focus groups, you had these Trump MAGA Republicans saying they were going to vote no matter what, right? That was kind of our, our, our big wish, not expectation, but wish that they would not vote if Donald Trump was not on the ballot. You're saying that's completely off the table, right, Sarah? They're, they're engaged hundred percent. Yeah, this is the big this is my big fear for Democrats that I, I keep trying to explain. There's an asymmetric level of enthusiasm out there. And uh, and Donald Trump is on the ballot for the people that he attracts. and He is not on the ballot for the people that he repels. And that is the big uh, that's the big problem going into 2022. Now, I do think, again, so I'll go back to one of the things that Democrats should think about. You shouldn't overlearn the lesson of uh, McAuliffe putting, you know, tying people to Trump. I think in a state race with a guy like Youngkin, who is very careful about distancing himself from Trump, you know, I think it was it is necessary, but insufficient. It is insufficient. It can't just be that. But like Trump is going to be Lord over 2022. Not only is he going to make his endorsements, he was out there selling endorsements left and right right now. Everybody's competing for them. And then he's going to involve himself in a bunch of these races. I agree with what Kerry said. I also think he's going to run. And I think he's waiting to see how 2022 goes. And I think if he thinks it's a landslide in his favor and a bunch of his secretary of states that he think are going to help him out uh, are in office, I think he's I think he's going to run. Um, and so he'll want to be putting every Donald Trump's number one ambition has never been to beat Democrats. It has always been to control the Republican Party and to have it bend its knee to his will, uh, which it has done. And so he'll be all over. He and all of the candidates who want to be just like him and act like him are going to be all over these races. And that is that is the opportunity for Democrats. They shouldn't they shouldn't think, oh, well, we don't want to focus on Trump because that didn't work for McAuliffe. That would be that would be to overinterpret that lesson. Yeah. Okay. So I wrote over the weekend a piece that was my column was Democrats should just quit talking about Democrats. They shouldn't say another thing about other Democrats for the rest of the cycle and they should only pillory Republicans. Right. So um, I think you would probably agree with at least that basic headline. Genius. Genius. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but so my question is what I, I think, I mean, I, I wish I'd made a longer list of these, but uh, things that they should talk about, like I feel like Democrats should be talking about January 6th because we're going to have a whole lot about whole lot of revelations coming out of the January 6th commission. And I 
okay, that they're going to be good revelations. You know, um, I think they should be talking about the Republican Party as an anti-democratic party. But like if you were going to focus Democrats on what to talk about, what would you have them talk about? If you could pick three issues to just pound home over and over and over again, as if there were message discipline. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that there's kind of an A and B side to every successful talking point. So I think you got to go on offense on COVID. Here's all the things we're doing. You know, I, I do think that that Bi- this is yeah. why I think Biden should take control now because I think things are going to be better come August and September. <clears throat> and you want it to look like he, he tried, you know, he made a difference and he was, you know, creating that. And while you're at it, define the anti-vax Republicans. It is them who is keeping this with us. <clears throat> and so like, you got to do A and B. You got you to go on offense and say like, hey man, we're getting COVID under control. We got flooded with tests. Numbers are down. And the only reason this stuff is still with us is because this right info, right-wing infotainment media and a bunch of these Republican officials are completely anti, you know, pushing this anti-vax nonsense. And we got to get people vaccinated, vaccinated, vaccinated. That's the, that's the first thing. Second thing is, the economy. The economy is good. Let me tell you a positive story about the economy. We're getting inflation under control. Hopefully that's true at that point. Um, but lowest unemployment, like we brought it back. And the Republicans were the one who, you know, destroyed this economy. And like, look how many jobs we've created since then. Um, and also, again, when you talk about COVID, always bring it back to the economy. We're going to do everything we can to not let this virus disrupt the economy. We're going to keep the economy strong. Till the Dow tipped over yesterday, you know, there was a lot of, you know, the, he could do the how, how's your 401k doing, right? The market's right. good. Um, so there's there's a lot of bright spots. So hit the bright spots in the economy. Create your own reality to some degree. Republicans don't even need things to be true to go out there. They built the yeah. wall for all the, you know, you listen to them. Um, <laughs> yep. So those are my top two. And then my third thing is, to your point, uh, is defining Republicans. So uh, and and not just anti-democratic. On, this is my honest opinion. Sure, it's crazy. Like totally outside the mainstream. Like Republicans have done a great job of saying to Democrats, "Well, they're socialists, right?" You listen to Republicans now; they're just like this, they're socialist, communist. You know, they don't even know the difference between the actual ideologies. They just sort of say a bunch of words, but they're they're socialists. And and you know, Republicans are trying to make that stick to Democrats. I just think these people are crazy. Marjorie, T- define them by their extremes, which, by the way, their extremes are pretty mainstream right now. Elevate Marjorie Taylor Greene. Elevate Paul Gosar. Paul Gosar goes to white nationalist conferences. Uh, all of these crazy candidates focus on how frightening they are. That, and then and the fact that they're anti-vax, the fact that they don't that they think the election was stolen, the fact that they think January 6th was no big deal. And I agree with you. Like, I don't think you should over. Here's the thing. I don't think you should over. I don't think you should make the January 6th stuff or democracy your number one issue. But I do think it has to be in the mix. And where I where I really agree with is that the January 6th committee needs to be like in prime time holding hearings when this happens. Like you do have another shot to redefine what happened and teach certain voters and keep it top of mind. And that needs to be part of the choreography. I just wouldn't lead with it because the daily lives of people are affected by COVID in the economy. And that's what they talk about. Yeah, I know COVID's a big one. I, I agree 100%. So Given what you just said, I've been particularly frustrated. And I think staff at Daily Kos, how Joe Biden keeps talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And instead of calling it its, its actual name, um, keeps giving Republicans credit for one of his signature accomplishments. Is there anything in your focus groups where, where people respond positively to the word bipartisan that would explain why the Biden administration is so hellbent? on broadcasting that 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 one of his signature achievements was done with the help of Republicans. 
Yeah, I mean, I do. And I think that, first of all, with swing voters uh, and, and in general, I think that Joe Biden, look, you guys have a fractious coalition. It's tough to tough to hold that thing together. Um, and I think that they've been trying to give progressives what they can. But they also know that when it comes to swing voters and when it comes to moderate Democrats, a lot of whom put them over the top. Uh, in in 2020, that these are people who felt like the promise of Joe Biden was to unite the country. And what they wanted to see was government working again. And they don't like the endless fighting uh, between the political parties. And look, these are people who are not so engaged. And so they just don't have, it wouldn't shock you, it, despite all the terrible things going on, most of these people are really nice. You listen to them talk and like, they just want people to get along. They just, want, they just want the legislators to work together. They don't understand why they're so mean and terrible to each other. And so uh, I understand what you're saying about the not wanting to give Republicans the win. I think it is a win for Joe Biden to say, I got Republicans to do that. And what he should be saying is like, <clears throat> everyone said it couldn't be done. Everyone said you couldn't get Republicans to the table, but I got them to the table. Like that is a good message for him with swing voters. And I, and I do think that that's an important, I mean, the BBB is not happening and everybody should let it go and they should put that infrastructure bill in their pocket and start telling people what's in it and make sure people know they Democrats got it for them and they led the charge on it because there's a bunch of Republicans right now who rewrite history and they'll go to the ribbon cuttings. They didn't vote for it, yeah, but yeah. they'll go to the ribbon cuttings and say, see what I did for you? Yeah. Historic investments, you know, <laughs> from the gov- from Governor Ducey, from, you know, I see that all over the place. So yeah, that with not a single, and that's not a those the most of those are from the American Rescue Plan, which not a single Republican voted for. So that's right, all right, we're we're uh, probably over time. Do you have one last nugget of genius for our <laughs> no, listenership no that they will remember for the years to come? I heard Sarah Longwell say it on the brief. Um. <laughs> While, That's a while great you, question. While you think, Sarah, go ahead and think about it. Well, I just want to say my takeaway, and I'm, I, I can't explain how much joy I got out of it, was you recognizing that as a Republican, you never appreciated how hard it is to keep us Democrats together. Because- oh, buddy. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I, and it, it's right. So I, I've, I've only done Republican stuff up until like 2017. And I, I don't want to I don't want to cast dispersions. I just like here's you want to do something. I'll tell you, there should be fewer icebreakers in meetings with Democrats. There should be fewer talks about feelings. Uh, there should be. I, I just I think that you guys need to just like discover your inner killers, um, because my big fear is that while everyone's being like I, everyone's like too nice and not focused enough on, you know, just, you know, really getting into it. like Republicans are. Everybody gets in, they sit down, they're like, what are, who are we going to go get? How are we going to do it? What's the message? How's everyone get on the same page? And it's very efficient. And uh, you guys have like a lot of like talking that you need to do. A lot of like things you need to feel like you need to get out before. Every- and I am, I will never give up saying that I'm, I'm a Republican just so I don't have to do any of that. <laughs> just so when it comes to icebreakers, you can be like, F you, let's get to the real stuff. That's right. So, uh, no one yeah. expects anything out of me as the Republican. Yeah, um, I guess anyway, that's what makes you- me an ex Republican because 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 um, I, I was a Republican way back in the day, and uh, I can't deal with the 
talking about feelings and the icebreakers either. And they're, they're my kryptonite. So, so you have a kinder spirit on the other side of the aisle when it comes to those things. Hey, I'm sorry, but I did think of my one thing that I want to oh, leave good. you with. Can, yes. I, can I just tell you? So uh, one yes. of the things that I've become pretty obsessed with, there's no reason that any of you guys would be watching Steve Bannon's War Room, but we track all this stuff that's happening on the right. It's one of like a number. It's a top five political podcast, right? Huge viewership, both on YouTube uh, and podcasts. They are running an, if, an, a, an incredibly efficient recruitment strategy to get people to run for offices at all level of government, state ledge, but also these county clerks, the the the, ju- the, um, the judges that appoint county clerks. Like they are trying to t- – and the way that they talk about it is we are going to take over the election apparatus. And their, their enemy is not Democrats. Their enemy is Republicans. They are trying to beat every Republican at every level of government that they can and replace normie Republicans who would follow the law around election with people who are much more interested in overthrowing elections or overturning elections. And and I think that it's I've been kind of banging this drum for Democrats that there's not there needs to be a much bigger response to that because so many of these races are uncontested. People don't even know about them. But I'm talking like precinct level. They've got a massive recruitment strategy that has to be countered. Which makes All me right. think we should have uh, Amanda from Run for Something on. I can't remember Amanda's last name, yeah. but Let they're doing they're doing a ton of that on the left, and I and it's and it's and it's super important. the The thing is, is that there's also one of the reasons I think a lot about it is that it, there's this like whole space on the right where it's going to be a Republican, <laughs> and so it's going to be between yeah. a Stop the Steal candidate or somebody who actually thinks you shouldn't overthrow elections. And so you got to try to figure out how to keep um, some of those people in office. Yeah, and I, that right. might actually speak to Joe Trippi's idea of, of a pro-democracy movement where there are, there are liberals, you know, maybe 20% in some of these blood-red districts, but that may be the margin you need to get the right Republican, you know, somebody who will follow the law in, in these positions as opposed to somebody who, who, you know, will put ideology above all else. Sarah Longwell, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah is the publisher of The Bulwark. Please check it out. And the podcast, which I cannot wait to start listening to, which is the, uh, what's the focus, the group. The the focus, focus group. group with Sarah uh, Longwell, and you can get it everywhere you get your podcast. So, Sarah, so much, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. That was amazing. And again, I'm so thrilled that you realize that it's hard being a Democrat. <laughs> stuff out there, stuff out there. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for All having right, me. All right, bye bye. Carrie, you know, I think people, we project onto the other side, like our, I don't know, our, our things. I don't know what to say. But you see this with Republicans saying, and I see this because I actually hang out in a lot of their forums and sort of the dark corners of the web. I spend a lot of time in there. And it'll be like, I wish Republicans had as much message discipline as Democrats. And I want to tear my hair out because... Oh, God, I see that in the comments all the time. I, I see it in the comments all the time. And you know, I so, want to. Yeah, sorry, Gary, go ahead. No, so yeah. I, I'm still blowing at the idea. Like somebody, somebody feels my pain. <laughs> right, feels your pain. So, I, you know, I want to go back to something she said about the bipartisan legislation. Just real quick, last point, um, which is she was talking about, you know, get Biden being able to say, I got Republicans to do that. And I actually think I know there's a lot of people who don't want to give Republicans any credit. But I think Biden being able to say, I got Republicans to do that is great on multi levels. And one of them is it appeals to her focus group people who just want people to get along and like get stuff done. Right. But it also gives him a lot of credibility when he comes back and says, 
you know, for the most part, I can't get them to do anything else. Like they're, they're not interested in helping us do good things for the country. I got them to do this one thing, but on this voting rights issue, they are just way out of bounds, you know? So I think he gains credibility actually as a messenger. If he says, I want to take credit, you know, I mean, he's not going to say I want credit, but if he takes credit for, you know, I helped get Republicans on board to do this thing. Right. Agreed. She totally convinced me because I was I was leaning the other way until she gave a rationale. But she framed it differently than Joe Biden did. Right. Yeah. It, it, so she framed it as in I mean, this is an accomplishment of mine. Nobody thought this, you know, we could get both parties working together. I was able to do that. It also counteracts the idea that he's an adult old man, that he's senile, all this nonsense. Right. So, yeah, yeah I, I guess I guess it. I'm convinced it, it does make sense in that framing, which they haven't used, but if they do. Right, right. That framing is, and you know, people, that's also something that the media will go for because the media already has talked about the bipartisan deal as, you know, being uh, proof positive of his theory of the case that he could get people to work together. But at the same time, he gets to acknowledge what I can't get them to work together on is ensuring everybody's right to vote. Right. He gains credibility by by admitting that he was able to work with Republicans on one thing. But then by saying, but you know what, I can't get him to work on this, this and this. Right. And so a lot of. Yeah. And a lot of the Democrats success this year are going to hinge on his popularity. And if this helps right. lift them with a certain segment of the population, independent voters, suburban voters, then that has value, irrespective of, you know, some random Republican getting some of the credit. So I get it. And it makes sense to me now. So that is our show for this week. Carrie, thank you so much for being such a wonderful co-host. As always, thanks to Sarah Longwell, our uh, guest today. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing to Kara Salaya for promoting everybody else in the Daily Coast. Uh, brief team, thanks you, our listener, our viewer, our reader, for being in the fight with us. This year is everything. Our democracy is on the line. So glad to have you fighting by our side. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful week. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.